You are listening to the Venture Scale SaaS Operator, the podcast where we interview founders who are actually in the trenches. We talk about the transparent journey of how they build their SaaS companies, how they grow them, and what they would do differently if they would do it all over. Hey folks, with us today, Kyle from Proposify. Super happy to have you on, Kyle. Thanks, Nicholas. Happy to be here. Awesome. Let's start with the most important thing. What problem does Proposify solve for its customers? Problem we solve is when a company is growing uh, their sales force, they typically get into a, a, a position where they start to lose control over the documents that sales reps are sending out. So typically pro, uh, proposals, quotes, contracts. Um, will go at the door. They usually have some sort of approval process in place, but it just becomes very chaotic managing it through Word and PDF. And so sometimes deals go out with the wrong information or the wrong pricing or the wrong terms or that sort of thing. So usually they'll look at Proposify when they are growing their sales team and they need to get more control and more visibility into what sales reps are sending out to their prospects. That's what we solve. And is there a specific industry that has like the biggest paid in that, or are you quite broad in terms of the industries you serve? We're quite broad. We serve a number of industries, although the ones that we tend to have the most volume of customers within tend to be services, businesses. Uh, we kind of break them into blue collar and white collar. So think IT, consulting, development, sometimes marketing agencies would be that white collar service. But then on the blue collar side, a lot of uh, franchises, a lot of um, B2B franchises that maybe do like contractor work, landscaping, parking lot maintenance, um, anything where they'll send trucks out to a home. Yeah. And then on the scale from like mom and pop shop and SMB to mid-mark to enterprise, where, where do you usually sit in there? We, we started out serving very small customers, and that was how we found initial product market fit was through uh, marketing, very small digital marketing agencies. But over the years, we've moved up market, and now our target customer is more on the larger size. So we serve you know, large SMBs, mid-market, and some enterprises. We'll use, uh, we'll use Proposify, and that's kind of more the direction we're heading. I love that. And... I would love to dig deeper on that because you're nine years in, so you have tons of learnings on who to go, to go after, how to go after those people. Would you start with the lower end of the market and the smaller companies again if you would do it all over, or would you go right after the enterprise? The fantastic question, and I think there's a lot there. It's generally easier to target small customers at the beginning because they are more open to trying new tools that are unproven, that are buggy or don't have all the features. So they're very fast to acquire and, and typically quite easy to acquire, especially if the price point is low. That starts to catch up with you over time because those same customers that are fast to switch will switch to something else or free tools or you know, as your category starts to grow, more, more competition will come out. So that's typically once churn becomes a problem And you only really notice churn becoming a problem after the first few million in revenue. Very easy to ignore it in the early days, but it starts to really catch up with you and compound later on. That's typically where SaaS companies try to move up market. And I think there's a lot of learnings we could dig into, if you like, on 
how to move up market and how to figure out that enterprise play or that sales motion. But the other, the, the flip side of it is starting out enterprise or starting out serving very big companies. And that's an approach that can work too. I personally haven't tried that, but what's working against most companies if they try to start out enterprise is just simply the lack of stability, integrations, privacy, security, and all those types of things that enterprises want to see. And they want to see a proven track record. So that that becomes challenging. I think that there could be a case to be made if you have come from a very large enterprise and you're starting a SaaS business, knowing exactly the problem and the pain points that you solve and being able to say, hey, look, I've lived in these shoes. I've been a corporate VP at a, you know, 10,000 person company. And I know exactly what problem to solve. Sure. Go out and build that solution because you know what it is. But if you, if you haven't walked in those shoes, it's going to be hard to sell it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's a, for a lot of companies, like the natural progression to, to get bigger clients as they get bigger themselves. And I, I would love to really dig into it because you, you mentioned the, the transition. How, How how big were you in terms of both revenue, like roughly, and uh, headcount when you made the the switch to hey, let's try to go after the bigger fish now? It was a very slow, progressive transition, so it's hard to say exactly where we were at. But I want to say we were at about a couple of million in revenue when we started to just experiment with higher price points and to hire our first sales rep reps. That would have been around 2016. That there was a lot of stuff we didn't know. And so it was very experimental. It wasn't, we, we hadn't made the decision, oh, we're going to transition towards enterprise. It was very much a, hey, let's play around with this and see if there's something there. Uh, we had more or less copied Basecamp's price point. They were selling, they had a 3,000 a year plan they were selling. We tried that and, it, and we sold a couple of them. And we thought at the time that those were very big customers. Wow, 3,000 a year. We were used to selling $20 a month customers. But um, it, was, it was interesting where it went because we were able to eventually close customers that you know, some now pay us six figures and more. But that was very gradual and there was a lot of pain and a lot of stumbling along the way to get there. Do you feel like it was the right decision to start rather small in terms of the, the price and very experimental? instead of making maybe not the rational, but like the more trying to plan ahead approach of saying, now we're going after the enterprise, let's chase six-figure deals. I think it's the right approach to start small and experiment, especially if you have an engine that was, that's working, right? And we had, we had a lot of really good growth from small customers. Our self-service sort of product-led growth engine was very, very sticky and, and it was that was where our growth was coming from. That's the right time to experiment with another channel or another customer segment. The approach I would take would be different next time. And I wouldn't hire salespeople off the bat. I would do the sales myself. Me and my co-founder probably could have done that for a year to experiment rather than outside reps in trying to train them on a sales process or a sales motion that we really had no experience running ourselves. So I would do that differently. And I think through the course of doing that, we would have discovered some of the objections that you face when you get these bigger customers on calls, like, you know, how, how does your Salesforce integration work and how, 
you know, do you guys have SOC 2 compliance? Do you have single sign-on? Like all these types of like security, privacy type of requirements at that stage, we would have faced those as the founders and that would have helped inform the product more. Um, I think the way we did it was just slower. It just took, there was, there was too many layers in between us and the customer. And so we didn't learn as quickly as we could have. At that point, why did you not make the decision to, to do it yourself? Because I've, I, I guess you, you had the thought in your mind back then. So for the founder listening, who's in that position right now, he, he wants to go the direction, but he was it more like, oh no, I, I don't have time or I hate sales. Like what made you not do it? And like, why do, why do you regret it now? Both of those reasons you, you mentioned don't have time and I hate sales, but I think there's more to it than that. So I actually don't hate sales, but sales is, is a grind and it is time consuming and there's a lot of rejection, especially if we're doing kind of outbound prospecting, which we try to do a little bit of, um, that just takes a long time. And so when things are working and, and growth is good and the team's growing and we're just busy with other things very easy and very tempting to just want to outsource that. Let's just bring somebody in, let them do it. They've got the time, the hours to put into it. I think fundamentally though, it is a mistake. And yeah, I think uh, it's, you're, you're denying yourself the, the firsthand knowledge and learning that you could, you could get. And also it's just expensive to bring salespeople on who can't close deals who you're, you know, you're paying them a base salary, but obviously if they're not hitting numbers consistently, they're not happy. It's much better for everybody. If you as the founder have said, okay, for the last six months, I've been taking three days or two days um, a week to focus on sales, to, to bring in some higher ticket prospects. And through the course of doing that, we've learned where we fall short in terms of product, where maybe our positioning should change. Or just how to price it, because we're, our pricing was limiting us too. Just the, the metric that we were pricing by was limiting the ability to sell six-figure deals. With that knowledge and with some customers that we were able to successfully close, we could have at that point brought, brought in sales reps and said, hey, shadow us for X number of weeks, watch us do it, take some calls yourselves. We'll coach you and train you and then get one or two reps closing deals. And then at that point, if it's working, if you can get some outside reps to close because you've figured out, you've, you've at least built a foundation for them to be somewhat successful with, then that's the point where you want to bring in, say, a head of sales, a director or a VP to, to build the team and grow it. You don't want to do that early on when you, you haven't even figured out how to close big deals. And that's the mistake that I see a lot of SaaS founders want to make. I coach a couple of SaaS founders as well, and you know I see them fall into that trap as well. I need a head of sales. How many customers do you close? None. You know they're not going to figure that <laughs> out for you. Yeah, right. Head of sales come in and they build. They take the engine that's there and they get it faster and hotter, and they grow the team. They train. They coach reps. They don't figure out product market fit. They don't figure out your positioning or fix your product for you. And so then what SaaS yeah. founders do is they bring in a head of sales, they can't make their team successful, and then they get rid of them in 12 to 18 months and go, now I tried sales, it doesn't work. 
that makes makes a ton of sense. So in summary, doing founder-led sales, basically learning the ropes, making the rough mistakes, making the adjustments, bringing in the first two reps, and when they're successful, then bring in the the leadership layer. Correct. Correct. That's it's an approach that's been proven to work. If you need to hire the right developers and ship fast, then React Squad is for you. A boutique agency that specializes in React and only works with fast growth startups. Get a 14-day risk-free trial and a transparent price of $95 per hour. Visit reactsquad.io to learn more. How does your sales for uh, right now, are you roughly 60 employees or how, how big is the company right now? Yeah, we're about 60. How many of those are in the sales org uh, today? We have with us today um, four AEs, account executives, who close, and then we have two BDRs, uh, and then we have a director of sales. Got it. And then the, the, are the BDRs basically setting appointments for the AE? So it's like two AEs share one BDR, or how, how, how does that... Uh like the mechanics work of that uh, sales engine? We've structured this a few different ways, but last year we made a change and we actually had the BDRs report into marketing. So Nadia is our VP of marketing. Interesting. Oversees and coaches the BDRs and they essentially handle all the inbound leads. So when somebody requests a demo through the website, the BDRs will, will, will jump on that first call, run some basic discovery. And then if they see there's a good fit, they'll set the appointment for the AE. And that actually has, has worked well for us. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer to that. And I think there's certainly pros and cons of having beat errors report into marketing versus sales. But for us, it seems to be working. And what it has helped with is created a very tight feedback loop between people sort of on the ground floor talking to prospects, feeding that information back to marketing to say, these leads are no good, we can't help them, they're too big, they're too small, they don't understand what we do, whatever it happens to be, they provide that feedback to marketing who can then tighten and refine the messaging of, of what we're putting out there in terms of campaigns and content. And then has, I guess sales has a quota, but does marketing have, or at least marketing leadership have like some kind of quota in terms of how many qualified leads they have to push to sales monthly or quarterly? Yeah, marketing has a pipeline quota. So we don't do it in terms of number of leads because lead, you know, size and quality can vary. We also score leads, yeah. A, B, yep. a, a fit, B fit. So marketing instead has a pipeline that they're able to hit. And generally speaking, it's about five times what sales quota is. So you want about five times the quota coverage in terms of pipeline. And then because you, you, you briefly mentioned before that you tried outbound. So did you try outbound versus SEO versus some other channel and then it just ended up being inbound? Or like, how did you end up on being inbound driven? At least if I understood that correctly, T take us a bit about the other on the part of, of basically how do the BDRs get their leads and how, how did that evolve uh, historically? Yeah, I mean, if we go way back to when we hired our first reps, um, we hired a third rep, Scott, who's um, funny enough now, our director of sales, he's been with us that long. 
And he, you know, he was doing a lot of prospecting and open. We didn't have a process figured out for it though. And it took us a long time to sort of figure what that is. But um, we haven't given up on it. We still do a, a fair amount of outbound. We, what we've found, at least lately, is that the AEs do the majority of the outbound. Um, BDRs a little bit, but it tends to stay mostly with the AEs. So essentially, and Scott's been a big proponent and a big believer in outbound for as long, really, he's, as he's been with us. So he encourages the AEs and, and leads by example in terms of just making sure that every day or every week we're doing some kind of outbound um, prospecting activity. It doesn't necessarily drive the pipeline about 20% of the deals that we close come from outbound, but 80% come from inbound. So the inbound engine is still the one that's providing the majority of the pipeline and the majority of the value. Now that said, outbound can work. It does work. Um, I wouldn't say we've gotten it down to a science where we could just say plug in a hundred years and have them produce quota for us the way a lot of SaaS founders would like it to be. But what we do find is that the deals that we close from outbound tend to be larger. So if you if you are going to close that big whale of a customer, they you know it's more of a 50-50 split. So they they tend to lean more on the bigger end. So the AEs basically take the, yeah, let's say capacity they have for outbound to really go like elephant and whale hunting in a way. Yeah, absolutely. But it's still, even when you do that, you're likely not going to land a massive customer, at least right off the bat. Usually there tends to be some kind of proof of concept or they sell it to one division within the company or one team. And land and expand has been the approach that's worked well for us and I know works for a lot of SaaS companies is you bring in a company, maybe it's a 10-seat deal or a 20-seat deal, but you know that there's the capacity for 300 or 500. And really, that's where the, the partnership between customer success and sales comes in. Because the customer success manager takes that 10-seat deal and over time nurtures it and grows it into that 300-seat deal. The last time I asked that, I promised, does CS also have a quota in terms of upsells? Or is customer success basically like quotaless in a way? No, they have a quota. Um, they have expansion targets. So their job is to expand uh, or retain a certain amount of net MRR churn or a, set, a certain amount of net MRR retention. So as a whole, we're aiming for about 120% in terms of revenue retention annually. So that would just break down for the CSM you know, how big is their, their book of business? Their job is to keep a hundred percent of it and grow it by 20% annually. And so then that breaks into quarterly targets. Makes sense. So if we look at it high level, it would be the marketing department delivering pipeline. So potential revenue, the sales department closing new, new MRR, new revenue, and then the customer success department, making sure that revenue base grows. You grows. got it. Yeah. Perfect. And then I would love to switch gears a bit from the, let's say, in the business part to more of like the, the, the being a founder part. You, you're at it for nine years now. And I see like a lot of founders get like itchy after five or six years to do something else. 
how do you feel about that? And what if you have that urge to like play around with other things? How do you integrate that into your job as a CEO to, to keep being focused while scratching that itch, basically? I'm really glad you asked that question. I think it's an important topic, one that maybe doesn't get talked about enough. Uh, you know, at, at nine years in my previous business, I had for five, almost six years. So I'm, I tend to be one of those founders who stays around a long time running a business. I'm not a, hey, every year or two, I need to flip whatever I'm doing and sell it to somebody and go start up again. Now that said, I, I mean, I'm a, I can imagine that it's very similar to like, you know, musicians that have been in bands for a long time, 10, 20 years, you know, or the Rolling Stones, if you will. Um, they're, they've got to get itching to try something else, to do a side project, to do a side band, but they always kind of come back to their, their main, you know, their main band. That's kind of how I feel about Proposify. Definitely have gone through periods of time where I've felt frustrated, bored, just wanted to sell it and move on and do other things. Um, but I think the, I think the important thing there is for any founders that are listening to this, if you can see, if you can look at what you tried to accomplish initially. So when you started your business, <clears throat> maybe you were, in my case, it was trying to get proposal software created, you know, trying to get that off the ground, have customers using it. Never, you know, almost didn't think I would get to a million in revenue. And here we are 10 million and going, ah, oh, is that all? Like we shouldn't be able to be even much bigger than that. But I think as long as you can keep challenging yourself and challenging your vision to say, okay, we did this, it works, good. Now, how much, what else could we do that's even more ambitious and more crazy, if you will? So I think there's ways to almost create a startup within your existing business. And I would encourage a lot of founders to, to really think about that. Because the thing is, Unless you happen to be one of those maniacs who just loves to be in startup grind mode all the time, let's face it, it's not a fun world to live in, right? You don't have any money, you have no team, you have to do everything. Every, it's, it's unproven what you're doing. Like You don't have any real evidence that people want what, whatever it is you're trying to build. Whereas if you can create a startup within your existing company that already has revenue and it has an opposite finance team and it has all the infrastructure in place to Feed yourself, feed your, you know, family, maybe be able to afford a great lifestyle. But then you can go, cool, now I want to build a new product within it, or I want to build a new service, or I just want to take our existing product vision and 10x it and make it, you know, way more ambitious. That's a better place to be in. And and even from a wealth building perspective, you're more likely to be successful doing one thing for a very long period of time than you will be trying to do a new business every two or three years or even every five years. It's just, it's just a slower way to make money, honestly. Did you have to play some, let's say, mental games or do a bit of mental gymnastics to get to that place? Or was that just the way you, you're wired, basically? And that's uh, how you ended up sticking it out? I did have to do mental gymnastics to get there. I wrestled with it for a long time. And, and I even, you know, seriously considered and went down the road of looking to sell the business. Um, now, 
two years ago, that would have been probably a fantastic idea because valuations were very frothy and even moderately performing businesses could command huge multiples if they were SaaS. By the time I was considering this, the market had changed significantly. Valuations were down, you know, the, the, we were, we were entering a recession and so suddenly it became less of a viable exit strategy. Um, so in some ways I'm quite glad that that was the case because essentially I thought I had a door out and the doors closed. That was not an option. So I was really left with only one option, which is keep doing this and in fact, do it 10 times better than it's going or, or, or 10 times more ambitious a vision or 10 times better in terms of performance and growth. So in a way it was kind of a, a blessing in disguise. It was like, you only have one option and it's through, there's no way around it. And I, and I think for other people, they may not be in that situation. Um, so there might be some mental gymnastics involved, but I think it, it may take a lot of time and a lot of reflection to be able to say to yourself is quitting or is basically trying to find a buyer for my business and trying to cash out really what I want to do. Um, because for anybody who's had cash windfalls before, whether it was selling shares or, or selling previous businesses, you kind of realize that once that initial period of, of excitement wears off of like, cool, I've got a lot of money in my bank account and I can afford a fancy car or I can pay off my house. Once that goes away, you're kind of left with, okay, what do I do now? And I mean, this has been pretty well documented that the majority of entrepreneurs who sell their businesses end up depressed within the first year afterwards. And, and so I think, yeah, taking that into consideration and going, why do I really want to sell it now? Is it because now is the best time for the business? Because maybe we could partner with some bigger strategic firm and become much more, um, really fulfill the vision in a much bigger way. Um, Typically, it tends to be like, oh, I'm just, you know, things are hard. I hate my employees. I hate, you know, I hate where we're at. Hard, you know, we're stuck. Um, but the thing is, those are always going to be true. And so what I did was I kind of thought to myself, like part of my personal vision <clears throat> is to become an investor. And, you know, I've done some angel investing, but I would like to have a portfolio of businesses in SaaS and some other industries. When I looked at it and I said, okay, so what do I want to do one day? It's to take businesses that are struggling to grow and to sort of run my playbooks through them and, and get them to that next level. Well, if I can't even do that for myself, can't even do that for my sole business, how am I ever going to learn how to do that for other businesses? So that was part of the mental gymnastics I went through. I love the honesty. And then because we were running out on time, What's that 10x vision you came up with? I want to hold that close to my chest right now. Um, but I will say that when I look at wh what Proposify can be in five years, we've seen the power that a generative AI has had on many SaaS businesses and just, I think, SaaS in general. Um, probably the greatest technical revolution that we've seen since smartphones, since the internet. Um, 
that is very much what the vision is rooted in and really practical ways that AI can be leveraged to create much more robust automation for documents at scale. I love that. And then I'm already looking forward to seeing what that ends up being when it's even more concrete. Yeah, I will be sharing it this Amazing. year. Uh, I, will, I will keep stalking you to make sure I don't miss it. And then one final thing, if people want to reach out either to you or to Proposify, where can you be found online? Sure. So, you know, obviously if people want to check out the software, they can. It's Proposify.com. Um, for SaaS founders who are listening, some of the content that might be more applicable for them is just my personal website, kyleracki.com. So that's R-A-C-K-I. It's Racky. Um, actually, a, a Croatian name, I great-grandparents came from Yugoslavia. For those that are interested, I only say because you're a European. Um, but yeah, no, I have a personal website where I have a, new, a weekly newsletter. I share some of uh, what I've learned over the years running a SaaS business that's very applicable to SaaS founders. So if people wanted to check out kyleracky.com, they can sign up for the newsletter and, and share content like this. Perfect. And I will be sure to link it up for everyone. Kyle, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Nicholas. I uh, really enjoyed you having me. If you like this episode, then you'll love the SaaS Operator, a weekly newsletter brought to you by Early Node, with actionable insights from SaaS experts in the industry delivered right to your inbox every Tuesday for free. Visit earlynode.com to subscribe.